Good afternoon or evening or day or morning, depending on when you are watching or listening to us. Uh, welcome back to week three of Student Development Theory. I'm very excited to be with you to engage with a conversation on ethics and theory um, and the use of theory. Uh, this week, we're talking about five different pieces. Uh, the opening chapter from the Critical Perspectives monograph entitled Situating Paradigms in Student Development Theory, kind of revisiting sort of the paradigmatic conversations we've had over the first two weeks. Uh, then we're going to do a, a deeper dive into critical theoretical models um, by a piece by Abelio Hernandez. Uh, we're going to follow up that with a conversation uh, with Melon Cabrera uh, with his uh, recently public, recently published um, chapter entitled Racism, Becky's Dance Around the Other R-Word in Student Affairs, uh, coming from this text uh, that recently came out. Uh, uh, a monograph, or not a monograph, but a collected piece, a collected book by Sarah Macias. Um, and then moving into a piece by Patrick Love talking about informal theory, which I think will help us inform uh, some of our reading of um, uh, Nolan's Cabrera's work. And then we're going to close out with a piece by Zina Colasio from their blog uh, entitled Taking a Break from Student Development Theory. Uh, but before that, uh, as is uh, procedure here, we are going to hear a dispatch from um, someone about how to use theory. Uh, and I'm really excited. Uh, this person is a recent CSPA grad. Um, and they were excited to come and share how they're using theory in their work. So without further ado, here's Miranda. Hi, everyone. I am a CSPA alum of 2019, and I currently work at Reed College as an area coordinator in the Freshman Life. Uh, in terms of my use of theory in day-to-day practice, I'd say that I, I use theory artificially. So uh, at this moment, our department has any um, basically any binding uh, theoretical framework for the work that we do. However, I am using theory. Um, unofficially, providing the students and doing student meetings, I think that I use the most is marginality and mattering. Uh, so, thinking about uh, students and how is it that they fit into the larger community, how do they make sure they feel like they belong? So, on campus, in the residence halls, in the college community. Um, and honestly, when I'm meeting students, I, I work the first two students like practice of the year. Um, that seems to be the, the biggest thing that, that pushes awareness is the sense of belonging. Um, so do I open a book and, and say, like, what does Schlossberg say about marginality and matter? No. Um, but I, I always bring back when I'm meeting with students and thinking about their needs and what they're saying to me and what I think they're actually trying to say to me versus what they're actually saying. Um, I bring it back to that sense of belonging, that sense of, of mattering in community and if they feel like they don't matter if they feel like they don't belong how do i find ways of of helping them get engaged and, and create a sense of belonging thanks Miranda, for that uh really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and, and by extension with all of you about how she is using um student development theory uh, in her first professional role post-CSPA, and she's out uh, west at Reed College uh, doing really wonderful things. Uh, 
So as I shared uh, this week, we are engaging in a conversation around ethics and theory. Um, and so I have up um, our slideshow. I have a, a what I think of as a fun um, uh, the scene development transit system map. Um, and so uh, just a, an interesting way to kind of conceptualize and think about scene development theory. It's just a fun um, image from a blog that I uh, have up here. Um, and so that's how we started. So first, uh, we're gonna start with the uh, Situating Paradigms piece um, by Elisa Adas, uh, which is the first article of her uh, Critical Perspectives in Student Development Theory. Um, and a lot of this will be reviewed from our conversations over the past few weeks. Uh, but I, she opens, with a quote by Gloria Antodua, uh, who says, if we have been gagged and disempowered by theories, we can also be loosened and empowered by theories. Um, just think about how theory can be liberatory. Um, and so most of the um, perspectives and, and theories that I engage in um, all sort of challenge power structures and, and try to create a more equitable and inclusive space uh, for members of our campus communities and larger sort of beyond this uh, ivory tower as it were. And so um, Avis talks about the four paradigms that you all are likely familiar with, uh, positivist, constructivist, uh, critical theory, and post-structuralism. Um, why might Avis call on us to apply particularly critical and post-structural theories in student development theory. Um, that's uh, something that I think we'll have a conversation about when we get together on Monday. Uh, but for now, I want you to spend some time thinking about that. I have some thoughts on it. Um, I think she answers it in her piece, and I, and I probably have some uh, additional thoughts beyond sort of what she uh, offers. Um, so she talks, this quote is from her piece on page nine. She says, theories directed to the development of non-dominant populations, such as those focused on minoritized racial and sexual identity, are typically grounded in psychological perspectives. And I've talked about this before, right? How uh, a lot of the earlier student development theories come from, a, from psychology. In fact, uh, one of our readings from this week Patrick Love is actually a, a faculty member in a psychology department, as well as being director of the um, Student Affairs Master's program, right? And so because that these um, theories are grounded in a psychological perspective, they foreground students' individual experiences rather than the systems of oppression, such as racism or heterosexism, uh, that shape their experiences. Um, and so uh, think about that, right? And so there are certainly, um, schools um, of thought within psychology that do engage in systems of oppression, but a lot of these older theories aren't necessarily talking about systems uh, and structures, um, and they're more individualized experiential experience theories rather than social, sort of a social approach to theory. Um, sorry about that. Um, she began, she also engages and talks about the work of Peggy McIntosh. Um, some of you might be familiar with her work. Uh, she most famously wrote a piece uh, called The Invisible Knapsack, where she talks about um, this invisible backpack uh, that people wear, particularly white people, 
uh, though it has been expanded to talk about different types of backpacks. Like, uh, but her initial piece was talking about the invisible backpack that white people wear um, to talk about the unearned um, benefits of whiteness, right? And so like how these privileges perpetuate and uphold uh, notions of white supremacy. And, and so in the 2010 piece that it is uh, cites, uh, she uh, specifically engages and talks about these sort of two different things, the unearned advantages and conferred dominance. Um, unearned um, advantages are something as um, sort of innocuous as like not having classes on, uh, your, on holidays from the cultural background you celebrate, right? And so for instance, growing up, I grew up in New Jersey um, and I, uh, I say I'm Jewish-ish. Um, I have some uh, Jewish heritage, but now I'm practicing Jew. Um, and, but growing up, like I knew what Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur were because they were school holidays where I grew up. Um, that isn't the case everywhere, but where I grew up in New Jersey, um, that was something that I just came to take for granted. And when I moved outside of um, the Northeast, um, that wasn't the case anymore. And so it was uh, a thing that I experienced uh, that wasn't super hyper important to me, but I got to use that as sort of an acknowledgement of seeing how it is to have something that is part of your culture as part of that um, privileged conversation, but then all of a sudden it's no longer what I switch context. And so something that is true also about privilege and oppression and systems is that it is all contextual, right? Um, the context of where you live um, matters uh, to a certain extent. Um, and that changes throughout sort of time and history and location um, uh, because it is, and this is coming from sort of that constructivist critical uh, framework is that identities are social constructions based upon those previous things I was talking about, the time, the location, and the space. Um, um, I am a, a big, if I'm gonna use the, the, the youth uh, slang, um, I'm a huge Audrey Lord stan, um, and so uh, she closes out uh, her piece uh, by talking about and using a quote from Audrey Lord uh, that says the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, which is a pretty famous quote. And I have um, a two other sort of famous, uh, one famous picture and another famous quote with a picture of Audrey Lord up there. Um, and I'm a big, uh, big fan of her work. Uh, I, yeah, I can't say enough about her. Um, but so this um, piece really talks about uh, the purposes of um, student development theory using critical frameworks. Um, and that though this chapter is brief uh, in its, um, its, um, its analysis and, and sort of um, it's intended to serve up to be an overview of critical and post-structural theory uh, to serve as an introduction of the following uh, chapters. Uh, to sort of answer the question uh, posited earlier, um, or rather to talk about how critical and post-structural frameworks are going to be used in the following chapters. Uh, she says that um, on um, page 14, uh, that they are gonna be applied in two ways to critique existing student development theories, illuminating how they marginalize oppressed students. Uh, so we'll talk and engage a lot about not only within these chapters, but a through the other reasons when we're engaging in sort of in these theories, having conversations and thinking critically of who do these theories center or pay attention to, um, and who do they not consider in their realities. 
um, and why might that be dangerous or harmful and how might that reify or make real um, or retrench uh, systems of domination and oppression. Um, and um, finally, and I think just as important and perhaps harder is to imagine the ways that student, that the new ways, the new possibilities that student development theory might um, create something that is more just and equitable. Um, there is no better time to dream and imagine the impossible uh, than graduate school. There, so um, uh, there is a, uh, I'm a, kind of a, a fan of Alice in Wonderland. Um, there's a quote, um, I know it's in the, the newer version that was released, not the anime Disney version, uh, but in the other one, um, the, I believe it's the, um, the Mad Hatter um, makes a statement that sometimes I believe that there's many six impossible things that I And so I think part of being a graduate student is the imagining. So what can you imagine? What can you see up? And it is my goal and my um, position as a faculty member of yours uh, to help you make your So how can we imagine new forms of knowledge, new forms of education that can be more just in your um, That's sort of uh, my goal with education Next, we have the piece by David Hernandez, uh, a critical theoretical perspective. Um, this comes um, from another text, um, the full text that comes out of. But, um, so it engages uh, specifically with these two critical theoretical models. Um, and so she talks about engaging in uh, the multi so ask yourself, what is the So she talks about uh, sort of uh, the pros and cons of naming and having multiple. Um, so the pro is that it might end up diversifying the voices represented in the development period, helping to ensure that these uh, various identities and lived experiences are considered, thought about, robustly represented, research, um, but just as if nothing, uh, more importantly, um, in the practice of student So more people uh, can kind of uh, be engaged in ethical, uh, ethically engaged practitioners when it comes to engaging in you know, issues of oppression some of the fonts, um, it can be done poorly, um, as we will see when we talk a little bit about Nolan Rivera's work, um, that there are people who can use research in a dangerous way, uh, in a way that pretends to be one thing, but in reality is not trying to do anything. Um, it uh, basically colors so sort of what that means is there's this uh, frame right so let's think about uh, cast uh, cast is uh, a sexuality model 
that largely slows the ballot and speaks to white gay men. Um, now, if one is to replicate that exact study, which is things that some academics do, and just replicate it um, and see if they can uh, get similar same results. Um, now, if you're just going to put um, and do the exact same study, but only engaging in black men or in uh, Latinx men or Asian men or Native American men, indigenous men, right? Or just men of color in general, right? Does that really um, generate new knowledge? Um, or is it just simply replicating sort of color and sample? Um, and then further, um, and I think most importantly, is that by simply just adding the multicultural perspective, it doesn't consider systemic issues of health, right? It is not a critical perspective. It is just like, oh, we're going to take race into account as an aspect of identity, but it's not necessarily going to um, fully realize and actualize the importance of systems of oppression on social identities such as race or gender or class or sexuality. So um, she, she says on, on page 206, um, talking about some of the different critical theoretical models of which she is considering in this piece, including critical race theory or CRT, intersectionality, uh, and queer theory or PT, which are sort of abbreviations that many people, including myself, will use. Um, she says that the use of critical race theory, intersectionality, and queer theory is creating new directions in possibly the development of religious studies and understood. Um, but these theoretical perspectives are not developmental in the sense that they do not explain how meaning making or developing evolves, but they are used to expose developmental processes that foundationist in development theories do not have a language. And so thinking about some of these um, frames, these, these um, theories, um, they did not capture um, or think critically about some of these issues of oppression um, and the impact that has on the religious experiences Think about why that might be. Why were these uh, theorists, these scholars, these models not engaging critically uh, with these conversations? We'll come back to that. So, then uh, we go uh, into critical race theory. Um, so, within critical race theory, as I said before, critical race theory comes out of critical legal studies, uh, which is a combination of scholars within the legal uh, tradition engaging in critical theory and understanding that. Uh, laws reflect the people who wrote them. And who wrote laws uh, were white people, were white men, those who had the power and were in charge. And so uh, they challenged that even some um, sort of, uh, some laws that were thought to be uh, inclusion uh, oriented might still have some moments of violence. Very famously, um, a really important article in the critical uh, legal scholarship, uh, critical race theory, is. Um, Derek Bell's uh, piece entitled um, Brown versus the Board of Education and Interventions. And so he talks about Brown versus the Board of Education, which assuming you all know is the landmark Supreme Court case uh, that ended Plessy v. Ferguson. Uh, Plessy versus Ferguson kind of said that separate but equal um, is the rule of the law of the land. Um, and Brown versus the board said separate can never be equal. And so that overturned um, uh, separate but equal. And so that is what started the integration of schools throughout the country. Um, and so Derek Bell uh, 
offers an analysis of how that uh, really destroyed uh, parts of the black community uh, that uh, not were we sending white students to formerly black schools, but we were sending the black students to formerly white schools. And he was being forced to integrate. And what, moreover, what happened to all those black teachers in the black community? Um, there was a, 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 a rising uh, middle class of black teachers that was decimated because they were not allowed to be hired uh, within the black schools. And so this uh, supportive space where black students were able to learn and thrive in a space where they weren't dealing with racism in the school, or they still dealt with it outside of the school, but within school they weren't dealing with it in the, quite the same way they were going to have to deal with it when they were um, forced to go into integrated schools, right? And so that is a, a frame that critical race theory brings us. Uh, these are things that before I read that work, that is nothing I ever thought about. I was like, oh, of course integration is good, right? As a white person, like, I never really had to face the reality of sort of oppression by going into an integrated school. Like, I was a white person, I am a white person, uh, that hasn't changed. Uh, and so um, that's something to consider. Within critical race theory, uh, critical race theory has kind of the um, mothership. Um, it's the, kind of the best way I can think about it, as I talked about last week with the five tenants. Out of critical race theory, um, developed uh, several other different sort of uh, sub schools, uh, dispatch ships, if you want to keep it another ship uh, analogy. So, sort of Asian crit, tribal crit, black crit, this crit, and critical whiteness studies. These different areas which engage and consider um, race from different perspectives, whether it's uh, Asian uh, experiences or Latinx experiences, um, um, and then disability, sort of the intersection of disability, race. Um, and identity, um, and then critical whiteness studies as well. Um, yeah. And uh, importantly, because it is a critical paradigm, it comes out of a critical paradigm, it focuses on power and the power of which it is analyzing and the power of groups. Intersectionality, we talked a lot about last week as well, uh, but importantly, it involves an analysis of power and it's always about uh, the power of race, um, and one or more other uh, historically marginalized identities. Um, and power is central to that. How does power compound and exacerbate or exponentially increase the realities and experiences of um, oppression? Finally, queer theory, um, of which we're talking about today, um, is talks about uh, challenges binaries. Right? So um, it is a difficult uh, theory uh, from which you draw, and it's kind of one of those theories that it's like, is it really um, developmental? Because it's going to question uh, what is development, under what frame and to what comparison are we developing, and is developing something that is uh, wanted, right? So the notion of development is sort of antithetical to queer theory. The three sort of um, tenets, uh, queer theory is harder because there isn't, it's sort of fluid in many regards into what it is. It is um, uh, a pastiche uh, in terms of what it is taking on and it's uh, thinking thought. Uh, but largely it is going to still be engaging in power, but it's going to be talking about sort of like uh, citizen heteronormativity, the perversion of heterosexuality, this idea of a compulsory heterosexuality that society always assumes heterosexuality out of everybody uh, regardless of anything. Um, the performativity, right? And so this notion that identity is always um, 
in flux and it is not something that is solid or uh, always static, but it is an iterative process that is performed based upon other things that you have seen, right? And so uh, how I perform my identity as professor, right? Uh, is based upon other professors I have seen and sort of that iterative nature of understanding what it means to be a professor, using that as an understanding to build my own identity. Um, and then liminality. Um, and so I think about um, a lot of uh, Florian Zaldua when I think about liminality, um, but sort of that like engaging in and beyond sort of the borders of identity and that identities don't fit into new boxes, but that you might purposely transgress identity boundaries um, to transgress norms and then push back against expectations. So, when we take a moment to critically examine critical uh, student development theory, uh, what I want us to always go at is that, that student development theory is a place to start. We shouldn't uh, be going out and be like, oh, well, we have this student. Let me pull back my book. Um, and it says here on 233 um, that, you know, Mead and Sterling pointed out that definitions of understanding of disability are located inside of culture. And so let's think about the time and culture, right? Like that's not what you should be doing with your students, but you are understanding that theory might be a place from which you should start. And that was like the 233, not where we are in this book yet, um, but it's just a, a conversation for us to start about. And to think, begin to think um, rhizomatic, right? How things are interconnected uh, and blend and braid uh, and intertwined some theories um, interact and intersect with other theories and that there are theories that you want to take some things out based to uh, embody your own idea of your uh, theoretical toolbox as a practitioner. Um, and yeah, so that's sort of um, how I want you to approach theory as a practitioner. Um, she asked us, uh, the end of her piece to really uh, shift the purpose of student development theory to identify and understand that identity is changing and ever fluid. Um, I think a lot about what I think about identities and fluid, uh, how identities are fluid. I was always told, like, I remember I was told when I went to college, like, you're going to college. This is a brand new place. You can be anyone you want. Which is like this thing where it's like, the can right? Uh, as as theory teaches us, like identities are iterative, so we only have a base for which to draw who we are based on our historical understanding of who we have been. And so it's it's hard uh, to make a drastic change, but changes occur, right? Um, none of you should be the same educator, the same um, practitioner, the same person at the end of this semester that you were at the beginning. Um, we have all failed, myself and you have failed if you are continuing the same person, because the point, this is you know, my belief, um, that the point of life, is what's the meaning of life? I believe that the meaning of life is to continually grow and learn. And as you grow and learn, uh, we are able to sort of change how we see the world. And so that's what school is about, right? It's about for us to uh, take what we read in books and, and maybe conversations with colleagues and friends and peers and figure out how we um, can better this program, how we can be more ethical and engaged practitioners for equity and justice. 
Critical perspectives, this quote um, from 216 uh, states, critical perspectives suggest that some developmental theories may perpetuate the privileges and maintenance of social norms at the cost of further marginalized minoritized groups and assessing their developmental processes as less mature or developed. And so for me, this um, goes back to sort of what I was saying about queer theory in terms of uh, development, um, who is it being compared to? And sometimes for some of these models, they're comparing development of students to sort of this idealized notion of what a student should be without taking into account the complexities and nuances that students have. Um, we, are, we are not all Clark Kent students, right? Uh, we have many types of superheroes uh, that exist in the world, and we should acknowledge and see the beauty and the complexity of all uh, people that are around us. So now uh, might be a, a good time to take a quick break. I'll see you in just a minute. And we're back. Uh, we're going to uh, bring it in uh, to the piece by Nolan Cabrera entitled Racism that can stand on the other forward in instrumentary. Um, I was a uh, really big fan of this piece when I first read it. Uh, I was really excited about the book to come out. Um, uh, I think uh, it's an important book when I was looking at the table of contents and, and saw this one, uh, this piece. Uh, I've read a, a number of works by uh, in the past. And I was really excited to uh, have a piece that he wrote uh, specifically around the ways that student affairs folks uh, are uncomfortable with having conversations about race. Um, and so uh, racism has become a four-letter word. And so four-letter word, uh, growing up, I was, you know, people would talk about four-letter words, like the curse words, right? Like uh, a lot of curse words out there begin with four-letter words. So, uh, so uh, some of the questions that he raises on page 148 uh, are about um, what issues. Uh, um, so, sorry, back that up a bit. Uh, racism becoming this four-letter word, right? So I remember. Um, I was years ago, before I was a faculty member, before I was even in a doctoral program, I was asked to come in and do a guest lecture in a student development class in a previous institution. Uh, they were talking about um, cross uh, and, and other racial identity development models. Um, and students were unable, and, sorry, they weren't unable, they were unwilling to engage around conversations of race. Um, and I, and, I, and I called them on that. Um, and they asked me, you know, when will we be comfortable? How did you become comfortable? And I don't know if this is the one size fits all answer, but I would say that you cannot become comfortable around. For me, it was true. It is, it is you have to come to terms with sort of your own racial identity um, and the impacts that it has on others uh, and do some self work. Um, and a lot of Googling, right? Um, you can't, as a white person, we can't be relying on our friends, colleagues, coworkers, peers of color to educate us. Um, and it, it's particularly white people that I'm speaking about who have issues around talking about issues of race. Um, and that has always been present and apparent uh, for some people, but I think it's become more present and apparent uh, recently, unfortunately. Uh, 
And so um, I would challenge all of you uh, to do that self-work, do some reflecting and thinking about sort of how race has uh, had those, as Peggy McIntosh talked about in the piece, uh, I believe it was the ABIS piece that we talked about, that ABIS piece about the unearned advantages and conferred dominance. How have those impacted uh, your lived experiences? So uh, here's the cover of um, the book by Cheryl Matias, uh, Surviving Becky's Pedagogies for Deconstructing Whiteness and Gender. Um, so I haven't read the whole book, obviously. Um, it just came out somewhat recently. Um, but uh, the, this is the book that this piece comes out of. And so Becky, the Becky of this story, Becky uh, is slang that, you know, um, I first came to it, or sort of, I think it came to sort of public consciousness uh, from Beyonce's uh, Lemonade album. Um, but uh, so, which, you know, like the fun sort of riff off a Starbucks cup on the cover here, uh, but talks about how uh, the Becky in question, who is sort of the head of student affairs at uh, the institution that Nolan Cabrera is at, um, and talks about how she, I, as I would say, she weaponizes research. Um, and so that is maybe something that uh, folks haven't always considered or thought about before, um, but the ways that research can be um, made to say the things that folks want to or to not ask questions they're unwilling to get uh, answers they don't want. Uh, another way that this, maybe a less aggressive way that this is sometimes thought of is sort of creaming the data, right? Um, uh, I think for instance, uh, very publicly, uh, people have talked about, well, we should test less people for coronavirus. Because if we test less people, then we're gonna have less positive results. Uh, that is a way that we recognize research uh, to not have the full accurate picture uh, to prove a point that individuals want to point, uh, prove. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of this piece uh, because it engages in um, uh, Beth Cabrera's voice. Um, I really love his writing style. Um, it goes back to one of the tenets of critical race theory that uh, storytelling and narratives of historically oppressed people, marginalized people, folks of color are central and should be uh, serving as the primacy for research. And so this piece um, is kind of a narrative of his experiences of being a uh, faculty member of color uh, at an institution uh, fighting for equity and justice for students uh, against white supremacy. And so he uses his, um, his voice and his narrative uh, as a point for teaching for us to conceptualize and push back about how uh, white supremacy uh, rears its head in academia. Uh, there's a, a piece, a critical race theory piece, I think maybe one of the first critical race theory pieces uh, within educational literature by Gloria Lison Billing, talking about what is critical race theory and what does it do in such a nice field like education. Um, and so there's this idea that education is this nice place where we don't necessarily deal with issues of racism. Um, and there's a whole body of literature and experiences that are saying that's just malarkey and that is not true. Um, and so I think Cabrera's piece uh, talks a lot about that. I'm really excited uh, for us to engage and talk more about Cabrera's piece when we come together on Monday. We're gonna move uh, into Patrick Love's piece um, on informal theory. 
Um, the title of the piece is called uh, Informal Theory, the um, Ignored Link in Theory to Practice. Um, and this piece comes out of a journal called Student Development, sort of one of the bigger journals for student affairs folks. Um, and he talks about the three different levels or ways to think about how to apply theory to practice. The first is the individual in their practice, which is the focus of this article. Um, and the second is the conscious application of formal theory research to developing our program. Uh, the third is at the organizational unit, right? Um, but we're really talking about the individual and your practice. Um, and so Patrick, uh, uh, Dr. Love talks about um, how a lot of practitioners, new minted professionals, they go into a job and, and they're trying to use theory. Um, and they're talked about how theory is for grad school, it's not for practice, and that no one in the field uses it. And part of that's part of the reason, I think perhaps um, part of the reason why I'm doing these dispatches, um, because people do use theory. Um, and, and some people don't because they forget it. And some people purposely don't because they don't want to. And I think these are all different ways that theory manifests or not in practice. And so I want to bring in different practitioners each week to talk about it. Um, and so uh, he cites this idea that uh, practitioners are anti-theory. Um, and and I, I don't think that is, uh, is true. Uh, I think there are many ways uh, to use theory uh, that can be valid and real. Um, so yeah, this dichotomy, uh, as he says on page 179, the dichotomy that has arisen between theory the important formal theories run in graduate school and practice or the job is due in part to the misunderstandings of theory and the relationship between theory and practice that persists in our literature and the discourse in our field on the subjects of theory and practice. Um, and I think that's true. Um, one of the struggles that I'm trying to maintain is that what I'm writing and theorizing is to be grounded in the work of practitioners. Um, because, you know, uh, I was a practitioner three years ago. And I still feel like that is relatively recent. For those, some of you, that's longer than you've been out of school. So you, I have never been, um, you know, like uh, there's, there's quickly going to be a gap from when I was no longer a practitioner to the students in my program, right? Um, and so it is important, I feel, for scholars of higher education, those of us who are writing about the experience of students and the experience of practitioners to engage um, authentically and often with practitioners still, so that way we can understand that our, and be able to articulate the ways that our theories um, translate into practice. So um, this is maybe a, a dated, but I thought it was funny, the student affairs theory war. Um, you know, maybe my second comic book reference in this uh, video. So um, yeah, um, again, on page 179, um, Love cites more upcraft uh, saying that theories uh, explain phenomena, predict outcomes, and permit us to influence outcomes. Um, that formal theory is a public, conscious, explicit conception of these phenomena. And that, um, and here's sort of, I think this is related a lot to some of the criteria that we talked about last two weeks of theory, that they're important, they're precise, they're comprehensive, they're simple and parsimonious again, right? 
the operational, the validity, the fruitful, the practical, the logical, and repeatable. Well, then he starts talking about um, the informal theories, right? And so what might informal theories be? And so for love, talks about these mental maps or tacit theories in these that everyone uses. And this goes back to what I was talking about, engaging and thinking about theory rhizomatically, how we can begin to conceptualize and pull bits from all over of theories and understandings, formal and informal, that we know that we might um, be fruitful for our own practice. So one of the things that he talks about, and this is this, this idea that is hard, I think, that a significant problem is informal theory that it is missing from or dismissed about with uh, in the writing about theory. Um, one could argue, though, that once an informal theory has been published, is it still an informal theory? Um, and so I think that is uh, a, a question to ponder, and I'm excited to hear your responses uh, in, uh, in class. Um, love second again more upcraft. Uh, talks about in loco parentis as being the first sort of informal theory. And so in loco parentis uh, being this idea um, that uh, higher education um, practitioners, uh, administrators served as the parental guidance unit for students once they're on campus. Um, so they kind of talked about that as being the first theory. Um, engaging with strange, um, talking about how theory uh, building is a necessary activity of successful administrative practice. And so this idea that one builds a theory and tests it out, and this goes back to um, the, uh, a graphic I shared last week about uh, how people engage in uh, theory uh, and practice and informal theory and testing it and going back to re sort of test those theories, right? Always trying to improve our practice and our mental models, I won't even use theory here, but our mental models of mind maps uh, to understand how to better uh, serve our students. And this goes back to the idea um, that when we publish formal theory, they become verified or made real um, or retrenched, uh, much more difficult to change, elaborate, and enhance. So I think about, about um, uh, the Kevin Smith movie Dogma um, and Chris Rock serving as the 13th apostle, a 13th apostle of Jesus. Um, and he has this conversation with, I think her name is Bethany, um, about that, you know, the, the notion of ideas versus faith and uh, ideas being more easy to change, right? And so I think this relates here to uh, what they're saying, right? And that when we publish and something becomes formalized, you know, when we talk about um, Schlossberg's uh, transition theory, can we go in and change the formal idea that Schlossberg has about transition because we have an alteration? Um, it becomes much more difficult to do that. Uh, now, if we have sort of this like, idea of what transition might look like um, and this mental map, it becomes more fluid and dynamic as opposed to this static rigid thing of uh, theory. Uh, finally, and I, I love this uh, this piece, uh, and this is coming from his work on page 190, students in uh, my student learning and development class often commented how chickering seven factors seem so self-evident, right? So when we think about 
theory is this common language, right? That theory uh, serves for us to talk about the different things, right? When we talk about SAS, right? What does SAS mean? Um, it can mean lots of things. Um, when we are on campus and we are talking in a sort of a student affairs mindset, we understand that SAS stands for student accommodation. Should have actually looked that up to make sure I know what it stands for. Um, so I'm really sorry. Uh, I'm really glad there's no one from SAS in my class as there has been student access and accommodation services. Uh, however, at my former institution, uh, student affairs was actually called SAS. It was uh, student affairs and academic support. Um, and so SAS can also be sort of an attitude, like someone's real sassy, right? And so if we don't have a shared language, it's really much more difficult for us to communicate. And so that entire last three minutes of me forgetting what SAS meant on this campus versus some other campus versus the attitude was all in English, but it had various different meanings based on time and context and location. Right. And so theory becomes this idea of understanding um, ways that student affairs educators can communicate across um, institutions, departments, disciplines, uh, functional areas and time. Um, so I think that's what's really important um, about theory. Um, Love goes on to continue and says that his challenge to the students was to get them to read within the Chickering seven vectors and try to discover where aspects of the details did not resonate. Such a lack of resonance or clear disagreement became a possible avenue through which to discover some aspects of your own informal theory and an opportunity to reflect on a possible weaknesses. So that kind of counteracts and changes up uh, what he said on the previous slide about how um, that when we publish things, things become much more difficult to change. But when we think of rhizomatically, not necessarily thinking about how we are uh, trying to publish something, but how we might take from and uh, work the margins uh, to uh, develop something more useful for your own, I think that's a reality. And so I'd also challenge you all to see yourself as a theorist. Um, and so theory doesn't have to be uh, this loaded thing with lots of a data, with a, a huge amount of data. And so thinking about the reality of Piaget, which is a long cited and well-regarded uh, theory development, only had um, a small sample size. Um, and so once you begin to think about and write down, uh, however that works for you, whether it's, you know, writing it down or typing it out or reflecting what you're learning in your classes, in your practice, um, that is going to help you long term, uh, within your career, both within graduate school and beyond. And so, um, there should never be a day without learning and reflecting. Um, and so he has here sort of the different ways to inform theory to practice talk a lot about these already, so we're gonna kind of move on, but we can engage and have some conversations in class. Um, yeah, uh, now might be another time to take a quick break, so I'll be right back. And we're back. Um, and so this piece comes uh, from Dr. Z. Nicolazzo, who is an associate professor uh, at the University of Arizona. Um, and this comes from a a keynote, uh, or a, it is a derivative of a keynote that she gave at NASPA in Indianapolis, uh, likely sometime in 2016. Um, I, I wasn't there, um, but comes out of her blog. Um, and so she was asked uh, to share some introductory thoughts um, regarding some questions about the student uh, affairs future, uh, 
the future of student affairs graduate programs, uh, the future of student development theory, uh, the, the promises and limitations of theory in the graduate uh, curriculum, um, and what materials she finds most beneficial and why. Um, and so uh, she wanted to create a, uh, an argument and understanding of uh, the ways that um, we might need to pause and take a break from student development theory. And so I pause here to think about the ways why, the reasons why we might want to take a break from student development theory. Um, she, she goes on to argue that, that student development theory is not useless or that we should get rid of it, but that we should take a break from the normative assumptions uh, that perpetuate uh, themselves within student development theory. Uh, she does uh, start by talking about, as I have up on the screen, the three uses of student development theory uh, to assess where students are at, encourage us to motivate students to develop further, and suggest that development and student development theory uh, is that development itself is always beneficial. Thinking about sort of the queer theoretical uh, models that I uh, offered earlier about how questioning the notion of development. Right? Um, so she talks about how student development theory, in essence, is is how we're all raised, right? And so thinking about, uh, you know, this is the first class um, for many of you uh, within the CSP. Right. And so we've come to this understanding that um, the first thing that new aspirant professionals and practitioners need to know is student development theory. Um, right. and so we, in, a, in essence, are falling into this idea that student development theory is the foundation from which our practice arises. So something to consider. Um, so her uh, piece draws on uh, Haley's 2008 uh, text split decisions. Uh, she argues that we should take a break because most of the theories as I've talked throughout uh, my, uh, my time today uh, are built on colonial Western individualist perspectives. Uh, they don't necessarily take into account time and place um, and space um, that I've talked a lot about. Uh, they don't necessarily take um, the context and the larger systems and structures into account. Um, they uh, project one monolithic understanding of populations uh, when that's not true. And so we'll talk more about that specifically when we get to some of the identity-based theories uh, that uh, Jones and Stewart talk about as kind of part of the second wave of student development theory. Um, much of the students' uh, development theory is still rooted in positivism and constructivist paradigms, which mean that they don't account for these interlocking systems of fashion. Um, and I think, um, that is central to understanding the experiences of them, of people, really, um, is that we have to see uh, them fully for the experiences uh, that make them, um, and that they experience as a life. Um, and so uh, she says that we need to, um, and I agree, that we need to teach the theories but that we need to couch them in an understanding of the critical critiques of them and where and how they might fall short and how we can engage in new things that might be hopefully more 
uh, liberatory and aim to um, create a space where everyone's more authentically, I don't like the term welcome because it still has a power differential, right? And so if I'm welcoming you to class, uh, if, 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 and this is coming out of the work of Sarah Ahmed, it presupposes who belongs there and who's new to the space, right? So it's not even a welcoming, um, but a, an analogy, but sort of this idea of creating a space that is radically inclusive rather than kind of a, this lip service to diversity and inclusion. Um, so she, she kind of closes out her piece that uh, rather than writing, um, uh, rather than writing uh, theories for dominant audience to quote, better understand minoritized populations, she thinks that it is important to write theories and promote research that is unabashed and is creating counter stories uh, which is a, a counter story of a key piece within critical race theory, uh, creating counter stories that are for and about those of us who occupy the margins so that we too can see ourselves represented in the literature. Doing so embraces what Drs. Jones and Stewart about, write about as the third wave in perspectives on student development theory uh, in Asia's forthcoming New Direction Services monograph on the topic, uh, just what we read last week. Um, and so, um, despite it being week three of uh, theory, um, think critically about should we always be so apt and quick to attempt to apply these theories wholeheartedly without critically thinking about them. Uh, and so, over the next several weeks, uh, we'll begin uh, to delve deeply into some of the foundational theories and then moving to the, uh, uh, the as Dr. Jones, Dr. Jones and uh, Stu will talk about the second wave. Um, and then throughout the whole time, we'll also be writing this third wave of a critique of these and thinking critically about how can we also acknowledge systems of a power and oppression uh, that are indefinite. Thank you so much for your time. I'm excited to see you in class on Monday. Um, have a wonderful rest of your day.